0: Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter and he said to her let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs but she answered him yes Lord yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs and he said to her for this statement you may go your way the demon has left your daughter and she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. The word of the Lord. How do you
1: access or connect to God? How are we supposed to approach God? There's a couple of different ways that people think about approaching God. The traditional or ancient view, the religious perspective, is you need to fear God. And so, in order to approach God, you've got to be good, and faithful, because God judges on that karmic basis of your good outweighing your bad. And from that perspective, you need to be devout. Do what you're religiously supposed to do. In the ancient world, that was offering sacrifices. The modern equivalent is well, you've got to show up at church, you've got to take away something at Lent, you've got to do something religious. That's the traditional view fear God, be good. The more modern view of God is that God is not this judge to be feared, but is really just a spiritual force, kind of like in Star Wars. It's in, around, everything. Really, you just need to tap into it some way. And in that sense, the purpose, the aim is to get spiritual, to find peace. But the approach to God is really just going internal. It's psychological. It's I'm going to find peace on my own through these practices that I'm doing. The Bible suggests there's another approach. There's another way to approach God, and we see that in Mark 7. We see the other way to approach and connect with God in the story of a woman, a very unlikely woman, who comes to and approaches and connects with Jesus. So the setting is this in Mark 7. Jesus and his disciples, a dozen, two dozen of his close friends, go to the region of Tyre and Sidon, That's in modern-day Lebanon, so north of Israel. Now, Tyre and Sidon, you have to understand, it's hard for us to get our heads around, wasn't super far away from Israel, but in that day and age, they were arch enemies of the Israelites, of Jewish people. It goes back through hundreds of years of history where they were political enemies. There had been wars fought between the Israelites and the people of Tyre and Sidon. But also tied into that was their religious paganism. The Jews were very faithful covenant followers. They worshiped Yahweh God. And the people of Tyre and Sidon were pagans, idolaters. So the people of Tyre and Sidon were in every way the enemies of a Jewish person like Jesus. And yet Jesus takes his disciples and goes and travels there. And he goes, it says, and stays in somebody's house as the guest of honor in that house. He's there as the guest of honor. And then we read that this whole encounter, they're hoping to just get away from their busyness, all the work that they've been doing. And instead, a woman interrupts. We read in verse 25 and 26. A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him, heard of Jesus, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged Jesus, begged him, to cast the demon out of her daughter. So we're going to gloss over some of the things that are in here, but there's a couple of key words in here that the original readers would have understood and that the disciples following Jesus, they, they jumped out to him. They were a woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, and demon. You see, in that day and age, women were second-class citizens in every possible way. It was so much so that a woman's testimony was not admissible in court because you can't trust a woman. And on top of that, women only had their rights through a male. A husband, a father, or a brother. A faithful Jewish person would never have spoken with a woman that he was not related to in public. Rabbis went a step further. Rabbis wouldn't even speak to their own family members if they were female in a public setting. It was unseemly. Who knows what it might imply? And one step even further than that is that this woman has no male name associated with her. In that day and age, the way that you identified somebody, especially if they were female, was the woman whose husband was, the woman whose father is, the woman whose son is. This woman has no male associated with her, implying she has a morally questionable background. No man wants to be associated with her. She's breaking all social protocols By entering this house. And on top of that, she is a Gentile Syrophoenician with a daughter with a demon. This means she is the wrong ethnicity, the wrong nationality, the wrong religion. She is an enemy in every possible way. She is a complete outsider to Jesus and his disciples in that day and age. She has no grounds for entering the house and approaching Jesus, but she does. This was not only highly unusual, it could be actually dangerous for her. But she enters because she's desperate. She's desperate for what she believes Jesus can provide her daughter. And so she enters. And then what happens is an exchange, a discourse between Jesus and this woman. The woman begs that Jesus would heal her daughter. And Jesus replies with one of the most confounding statements associated with Jesus ever. He says, uh, let me read it so I don't get it wrong here. Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. We read that and it sounds something like this. Hey dog, why should I give you some bread? This woman is coming begging for healing and Jesus calls her a dog. And in that day and age, dogs were not lovely pets that you cuddled up with. They were unclean, they they scavenged, they were out in the streets, they were mangy. You did not let them in your home for the most part. It was a term of dismissal and of prejudice. What's Jesus doing here? Well, on one level, he's testing her. He's testing her pride. How would she respond? Would she defend herself? You can't call me that. Would she leave completely embarrassed? Would she fight him? And if we enter in, we think, well, what would you do? What would I do? He's also testing the disciples. See, the disciples, by being Jewish men, had natural prejudices against women, Gentiles, Syrophoenicians, and anybody who had demons. Demons. His statement to the woman is just the sort of statement they wanted him to say. That's right, Jesus, stick it to her, that dog. Jesus is rejecting her just like we would. He's telling her off just like she should be told off. They're not getting it, though. The woman responds back in a very brazen statement. She replies to Jesus. You know, you weren't even supposed to speak to a male in public, let alone a rabbi. She not only begs for her daughter to be healed, Jesus puts her in her place, and she replies back. And she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And on face value, this sounds like one of those statements that after it's said, everyone in the room was like, Oh, back off. Did you see what he just, she just said to him? She basically posterizes Jesus. You don't know what posterize is, some of you, right? It came about in the 90s when people would dunk on somebody else. So it looks sort of like this. This is being posterized. This is Nene for the Wizards posterizing LeBron. The idea is you dunk over somebody so hard that it becomes a poster. It gets put on Facebook pages and Twitter feeds. And so Nene is posterizing LeBron there. And it almost seems like the woman's reply is posterizing Jesus, taking somebody who's more well-known, more honored, more highly recognized, and putting him in his place so that everybody in the room is just aghast. Their jaws drop. When I was a kid, we called it facial disgracial. So the woman seems to be facially disgracing Jesus. Jesus. You can imagine the disciples being completely angry that she even responds, especially that she responds in this way. They are offended, and they're thinking, all right, Jesus, now's the time to put her really in her place, expel her, get her out of here. But he doesn't. And that's because she wasn't really trying to affront Jesus. There's more going on in her reply than maybe we see on first read. Jesus' response back to her is not to put her in her place the way we would think or the disciples would have thought. He says, For this statement, you may go. Go your way. The demon has left your daughter. He completely affirms her. You know, several commentators noted that she is the first human in the gospel stories to understand one of Jesus' parables. The disciples are following along and Jesus tells all these parables and they're like, what was that about? The crowds listen to Jesus' parables and they're scratching their head. What is he talking about? This woman, a woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, a pagan whose daughter is demon-possessed, gets parables. Jesus is actually telling a parable about the kingdom of God. Let the children receive the bread first, not the dogs. And she does what you're actually supposed to do anytime you read a parable. You're supposed to write yourself into the story. Jesus has written her into the story, he's called her a dog. She accepts that designation, she accepts the role. Okay, Jesus, I am a dog, I'm not worthy of you. But then she does what you're also supposed to do with a parable. She not only writes herself in, she writes the ending of the parable using gospel narrative understanding. She understands that Jesus is a man of power and of grace. He doesn't operate on the basis of deserving, but on the basis of mercy for those who come and appeal to it. She says, yes, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall under the table. Jesus, all I need is your crumbs and that will be enough for me. Think about this. She's not saying, Jesus, give me what I deserve on the basis of who I am. She's saying the opposite. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of who you are. And that's what the gospel of grace is all about. You know, this day and age is very different than that ancient world, and it's much like the West compared to the East. That ancient world was an honor and shame culture where your status and your position in the community was determinative of your role and place. You were constantly trying to save face, make sure that you had a right position in the community. And in every possible way, Jesus and this woman are at opposite ends in an honor and shame culture. She is a woman without a male She is a Gentile who is begging and she breaks social protocol by entering this house and trying to talk to Jesus. She is at the most low-shamed level in social understanding. Jesus is the complete opposite. He is a well-known rabbi. He is a male. He is a Jew. And he is the guest of honor in a house. He is at the highest place. And as the dialogue begins, Jesus shames her further, it would seem. You are not only all these things you're also a dog who doesn't deserve the cru- doesn't deserve the food but she accepts it she accepts that place of being undeserving and that's very different than us we're the sort who are always fighting for our rights demanding what's ours this woman says i don't deserve anything she accepts the position of shame and instead just falls at jesus feet for mercy And Jesus sees in that a true act of faith. So Jesus doesn't treat her as was expected of a rabbi in that day and age. He doesn't ignore her just because she's a woman. He doesn't have the disciples throw her out, which would have been expected. He doesn't go to the form of prosecuting her because of this social crime, which would have been within his rights. He restrains his rights And in the end, there's a reversal that happens. Actually, Jesus is the one who takes the place of shame. You see, when he finally says, Woman, (laughs) everything you said has proved that your faith is there. Go, your daughter has been healed. He is elevating the woman, and the disciples are now offended that Jesus does this. He's receiving their, their ire, their shame. And the woman leaves honored. Publicly vindicated. But that's exactly what the Christian gospel is all about. On the cross, Jesus Christ bears our shame that we might enter glory, his glory. On the cross, Jesus was excluded from the table by the Father, forsaken as Jesus says. He was treated like a dog by his enemies by the religious leaders and the political authorities who executed him so that we might be accepted as children of God, brought to the table of our Father in heaven. It's a reversal for each of us. One of the other parables that Jesus tells in Matthew and in Luke is the parable of the talents. And in the parable of the talents, these different People are given certain things to, these talents, which is basically like money, to go and invest. And in the end, a couple of the servants do it well. And the master returns and he vindicates a couple of them by saying this. His master said to the vindicated servant, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This is often used to talk about how God will receive us when we enter into heaven. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ crucified, when we enter into eternity, God will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But if any of us are really honest, that's going to be a very embarrassing time. God knows everything we've ever done or thought. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm really not that good. He knows about those. Everything I've said, thought. God, I, I, I I didn't do that much. I'm not as good and faithful as you're saying I am. And God's going to reply, "That's right. You're not. But my son was. He was good and faithful." And you have put your trust in him as your Savior. That means his goodness, his faithfulness, his righteousness is being credited to you. When I look at you, because you put your faith in Jesus, I see Jesus. So when I say, Well done, good and faithful servant, I look at you as if I'm looking at my own son. Enter into my joy, enter into your rest on the basis of my son, Jesus. How do we approach God? Desperate and humble, just like that woman, trusting that Jesus is a God of grace. The gospel way is accepting that we don't deserve God's favor that salvation, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual or eternal, is never earned. And that's hard for us to get our our heads around because we are a merit-based culture. We earn things and we demand our rights. So most of us have an approach that's something like God owes me in the end because I'm actually pretty good. Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son But the parable is really about the older brother in the story who is completely indignant. He tells the father in the parable, Father, all these years I've slaved for you, and you never even gave me a goat. And for some of us, that's our approach to God. God, all these years I've been pretty good, and this is the life you've given me? Well, surely when the end comes, I get to go to heaven because look at everything I've done. I've earned it. We demand our rights, our wages. The Bible, the gospel makes it clear, the only wage we deserve is death. The wage of our sinfulness, and everyone is sinful, is death eternally. We either demand our rights, or we're constantly defending ourselves before one another and before God. You know, we're comparative people. We're always comparing ourselves to one another. That's how we feel good. And usually what we do on top of that is we make up our own set of rules, ones that we can keep and that others don't keep as well. So when I was in high school, I determined right and wrong, good and bad in my own head, and I had my evaluation of what was good and right and wrong. And here's one that I knew. If you smoked, you were bad. I didn't smoke. I was good. The Bible doesn't say anything about smoking. Why did I come up with that one? I mean, don't do it because it's bad, but, you know, for health reasons. We create our own set of rules so we can judge and criticize others. That's exactly what happens in marriages as the fault line begins to erupt. One spouse holds the other in contempt of court, has their own set of laws that they see their spouse breaking, and they stew about it. They hold on. They're bitter for years. We're constantly doing that with one another, and we do that before God. We have our own commandments and because we keep them, we deserve to get in. But the gospel says the only way to approach God, the only way to enter eternity is on the basis of nothing that we deserve and everything that he has done. Because of the cross, what Jesus offers is always a gift. It is a gift to the desperate and to the humble. And so that's the question. Are you desperate for what Jesus is offering this morning? You know, the woman's prayer was answered. Her daughter was healed. When we see the miracles of Jesus, we see things that the Bible claims actually did happen, and we do believe God still heals today. But every miracle that ever happened, from this daughter being cleansed of her demon to the the blind seeing to Lazarus being raised from the dead, was pointing to something greater. It was pointing to a salvation that Jesus is offering that is far beyond physical wellness. It is hitting on our true need, what Jesus came to offer, forgiveness of our sins, a right and restored relationship with our creator. It is pointing to a greater salvation, spiritual and eternal life. Are you desperate for what Jesus is offering Desperate's probably not the word we think about when it comes to meeting Jesus. Most of us don't come to faith in Jesus through desperate circumstances. Some of us just stumble into faith. Like a couple of years back, I turned on the radio and a particular song was on, or somebody handed me a book and I read it, or I was in a conversation with somebody that started sparking me to think about God, or you showed up at a baptism service thinking you needed to be there and then you started hearing about Jesus and whoa. Sometimes it happens like that and you don't know when Jesus hits you. For others of us, it's over the course of time. You grow in your understanding of Jesus, your understanding of the Christian faith, and it feels like something you're learning and getting better in understanding. It's almost like you're on a religious course or something. But ultimately, none of us truly get Jesus. None of us receive what he's fully offering until we realize how morally undeserving and how spiritually desperate we are. It's where we come to faith in Christ. It's also how we grow in our faith in Christ. We keep realizing how undeserving we are and how spiritually desperate we are. And we keep falling at Jesus' feet, day in and day out, so that we can experience the grace of and goodness and salvation of God again and again and again. Until that day, which will come for every one of us when we get to the end. And if our faith is in Jesus, the very next thought, the very next memory, the very next thing in our head will be the Father saying, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Father. Come and rest. Let's pray. God, there are so many ways that we try to approach or avoid you. But in this woman, we see the picture of the gospel. That we come undeserving, falling on our knees and appealing to your grace. Give us that bold faith to keep falling on our knees before you, who has taken our shame and given us honor, who has taken our sin and given us grace. Amen.
2: How sweet the sound that saved a rich like me.
3: Let us go before the Lord, asking him to be with us. Please join me in our prayer. Mighty God, we come to you this morning laying our hearts before you. Hear our prayers as you have heard the prayers of all the saints that have gone before us. Good God, we come to you knowing that we are inadequate to do anything about our petitions ourselves. In you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we trust you to act according to your will and fix our hearts to be satisfied with your perfect providence. We pray for our town of Vienna. Give wisdom to Mayor DiRocco and the town council so that they may execute decisions that will benefit all the people who live here. We pray for the town workers, Give them the ability and the desire to do their work in a way that is pleasing to you. And now hear our voices as we pray for Vienna, our neighborhoods, and our neighbors. Lord, in your mercy. We also pray this morning for our high school students, particularly those who are away at the breakaway retreat We pray that this weekend is one that your spirit has penetrated deep into their hearts. We pray for Rod Nunez as he leads the high schoolers. Continue to give him wisdom, compassion, and a voice to be heard by the students. Hear, Lord, our prayers for the high school students at this church. Lord, in your mercy, Father, today we celebrate with you and all the heavenly hosts the baptisms of Dan, Nate, and Allie Howard. It is in this sacrament that they will die with Jesus and be raised with him in newness of life, that the old is washed away and the new is put on. It is the sign and seal of your covenant of grace that they become members of your family, for you have taken what was dead within them and have made it alive so now they may dwell with you forever and ever. We pray also for Michelle, Dan's wife, and the mother of Nate and Allie as cancer has taken over her body and the physician's prognosis is short. We thank you that in her life she has lived in such a way that radiates your love to her family, that through her faithful walk, her family is here today confessing their trust in you. You have fulfilled your great purposes in her life. And just as her family will one day be with you for eternity, our hearts sleep when we think that she too will live in glory free of suffering, free of sickness and free of pain. But Lord, but Lord, please keep her here with us as a testimony of your great power. Just like the women who touched you and was healed, just like Jarius' daughter, whom you raised from the dead. The blind you made to see, the lame to walk, heal Michelle. Father, you have performed the miracle of saving faith, taking what was once dead and now making it alive. We pray that you will take what is dead in her body and make it alive. Now we as a congregation lift our voices to you in prayer for Michelle and her family, some because Michelle is dear to us and for all of us because you are the great physician and we believe you do great things. Let us pray. Lord, in your mercy. Our good God, we know that Michelle and her family are not the only ones suffering in this congregation and in our town. We are a group of people living in broken families. Marriages are strained and falling apart. We are ill or know someone who is. You look to act in all of our lives Lord, hear our prayers for those who are sick and suffering as we speak them out loud. Lord, in your mercy. Now with courage, because Christ has conquered death, we look now into our own hearts and confess our sins quietly before you followed by our corporate prayer of confession. Hear us now. and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.
4: want to tell you guys just a little bit about the Howard family first. Um, Many people here today know the Howards. They're very much an integral part of the town of Vienna. Um, Many people count them as valuable friends and love them a lot. So I just want to tell you a little bit about them. Dan grew up in Oregon and over the past 25 or so years he's explored the world as as a member of the uh, the Navy, the Merchant Marines, the State Department and he's seen more of the world than most of us ever will, and he's a sailor at heart. And he's got the tattoo to prove it. <laughs> <coughs> Dan is married to Michelle, as you now know, who, and I hope I get all these facts right, she grew up in Virginia Beach, went to school at Virginia Tech and UNC, and as a UVA guy, I'll forgive her for both of those, <laughs> both of those things. And uh, Michelle spent a number of years doing social work and, and adoption services and I think that reflects the fact that she has a heart of gold and, and loves people, and people love her a lot. Uh, Dan and Michelle got married a, a dozen or so years ago and then settled in Vienna with Nate and Allie. Nate and Allie go to Cunningham Park Elementary, and I can attest that they're great kids and I love being around them. Um, several years ago, the Howards moved onto, uh, into our neck of the woods next door to us. Uh, we had known them through the kids' school and soccer teams, but uh, them moving in next door to us really gave us and the families around us a chance to get to know them really well and enjoy their friendship. And as you now know, Michelle has, has been battling cancer for about a year and a half and um, went through nine months of, of a very difficult treatment plan that, um, that I think would have buckled the knees of Superman. Um, and last summer she started getting well again and getting healthy again and had clean scans and it seemed um, it was just sort of a magical h- half of the year compared to what was going on before and I think the highlight of that for us was a, a 40th birthday party that Michelle and Tatiana had together so they both turned 40 last year and um, it, they rented out Jam and Java and had a DJ, and it was basically a bunch of forty-ish and fifty-ish people acting half their age, and it was <laughs> completely awesome. Um, and so, a little more than a month ago, um, Michelle got uh, bad news about her health, and and that brings us to where we are. So, um, Michelle, I, I think I want to let it be known that that Michelle has put her faith in Jesus Christ and is confident that she is gonna be with him when that time comes. Um, and Michelle was baptized as a child, and uh, Dan, Nate, and Allie have not yet done that. <clears throat> I, I recall discussing with Dan a couple years ago uh, that he might like for them to get baptized, and then um, Michelle's, uh, Michelle's health went bad, and life got in the way, and that didn't happen. So, um, so now, Dan and Allie do not want to wait any longer to get baptized. Uh, by standing for every, by standing in front of everyone today, and choosing to accept the sacrament of baptism that Jesus Himself established, they publicly declare that they are putting their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ. Through baptism, we acknowledge that we are helpless on our own, and we choose to identify ourselves with Jesus, who suffered in our place on a cross, and who is our champion, our rescuer, our defender, our protector, and our advocate. He is the reason why we are able to have hope in times of darkness. So let today be a joyful day, and let's celebrate what God has done for us. Thanks.
1: Thanks, John. And I baptize you in the name of the Father who created you. In the name of the Son who has redeemed you. In the name of the Holy Spirit who will fill and go with you always. Amen. Amen.
3: Dan, we receive you into the congregation of Christ's flock and sign you with the sign of the cross in token that hereafter you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and to fight under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil and to continue Christ's faithful soldier and servant until your life's end. Amen. Amen.
2: On Jordan, stormy banks I stand And cast a wishful eye To King See you.